What is Peace Brain? Peace Brain is the synergistic connection between our mental and emotional bodies, blending the electrical power of the mind with the magnetic force of the heart. Listen and explore how to create unity worldwide as we blend science and metaphysics and open our hearts and minds to the possibilities of peace on earth and create the life we are each destined for. Featured guests range from angel communicators to zoologists and everything in between. Now here is your host, Dr. Gail Lash. Hello and welcome to the Peace Brain Show. This is your host, Dr. Gail Lash, and I'm really happy you all are here today. Uh, Today we have an amazing guest. His name is Gabe Enderly, and we're going to talk about how we can each discover nature around us, the natural world around us. And he's going to be sharing his experiences. Uh, He's got some really cool stories to tell, and we're going to be talking about that and encouraging you to remember your stories with nature as well. And as always, of course, at the end of the Peace Brain Show, I do a Peace Brain meditation, so please stay tuned to that. But first, as always, I want to open the show with a quote. And this quote is from President Jimmy Carter. Uh, from He was President of the United States from 1977 to 1981. And he's here in it, well, his... I was going to say he's here in Atlanta, Georgia with us, but he's not. Um, He lives in Plains, Georgia, but he does have his library and his um, center here in Atlanta, Georgia. So he says this, It is good to realize that if love and peace can prevail on earth, and if we can teach our children to honor nature's gifts, the joys and beauties of the outdoors will be here forever. So I like this quote because we really need to teach our children about nature. And so many times we get caught up in our indoor life uh, with our screens and with our jobs and, and with school, and we don't get out into the outdoors. And certainly if you live in an urban environment, you would think you may not have nature around you. But that's where you're wrong, actually, and I know we'll be talking about that here on the show is how to find nature in your urban backyard. And we really need to honor our nat- our natural gifts and nature's natural nature's gifts so that we can have the beauties and the joys of the outdoors forever. So I like that quote a lot. So let me introduce my guest today. It's Gabe Anderley and he is a naturalist with strong interest in herpetology, which of course if you know is about reptiles, snakes, amphibians, all that wonderful stuff, Um, ornithology, which is birds, (laughs) and sustainability. He has conducted field research domestically and abroad, and he has almost 10 years of experience working and volunteering at zoos in both education and the animal department. He has worked and volunteered with a variety of conservation-oriented nonprofits, and he runs the YouTube channel and the Instagram page, Nature with Gabe. Welcome, ba- Gabe, to the Peace Brain Show. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Happy to, to joining you today to talk about some amazing nature. Yeah, so let's talk about that. You know, first of all, I want to know your story. What drew you to learn about or to be out in nature? Yeah, so it, for me, 
it's actually really hard for me to pinpoint like one time or one thing that really drew me into nature. For me, it's pretty much as far back as I can remember. I've always been um, excited to be outside and explore my surroundings. And, um, you know, when I was a child, just going on vacations um, to faraway places, you know, and being somewhere where it's more forested because I grew up in a very urban area um, just outside of Chicago. Yeah, going to those places were things that really pop up in my memory as being um, times where I was really excited and um, that those experiences motivated me, you know, further on in my life. Um, but yeah, so it's hard for me uh, to pinpoint an exact time. And I think part of me falling in love with nature had to do with um, my parents and them, you know, supporting me, encouraging me to spend time outside. Um, but also just some kind of natural inclination um, that I think we all do have to connect with nature in some way. And for me, that happened really early on, and that's why I can't remember a specific time, but I've always <laughs> right. loved being outside and, you know, learning more and engaging with my surroundings and asking questions. So why herpetology? Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so... Herpetology has always been an interest, I think, because it's so mysterious. And also, it helped a lot that when I was younger, um, Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter, was huge. <laughs> and he was big into crocodiles, obviously, and a lot of other reptiles and amphibians. And so um, my interest with nature, you know, along with these people and things that I saw on television growing up, um, I think really pushed me to uh, start to look at these things. And, you know, I would get books and I'd watch all the TV shows and all of that when I was younger. And, you know, I just kind of fell into herpetology and really liked it. But I think really the um, mysterious aspect of herps, um, which are reptiles and amphibians, really makes me uh, driven to find out more. I love asking questions, and with reptiles and amphibians, they're things that oftentimes there's a lot of them around us, but we don't realize it, and they play really important um, parts in ecosystems all around the world. And so asking questions and discovering them and trying to go out and find them and understand them better is something that really has fascinated me and, um, yeah, made me much more interested in nature as a whole and taught me a lot that I've applied to other fields, um, like ornithology, for example. So did you have any snakes as a kid that you kept as pets? Yeah, so I it all started really for me in the in the field when I was younger with, with herpetology. It was all about going out and catching frogs. Um, so my best friend and I, when we were, I don't know, in middle school or maybe even grade school, we were yeah, definitely grade school. We were out going to the park and, you know, we discovered tadpoles and then we discovered frogs and then we became obsessed with trying to catch these frogs. Um, <laughs> and we, yeah, we absolutely loved it. Um, and that led to us eventually building a pond in his backyard and watching this little ecosystem grow and um, catching animals to put in the pond and see what they do and 
um, we came up with this huge master plan that we wanted to build this huge terrarium or uh, greenhouse when we were older and we'd put all these different animals in it. Um, and, and so, yeah, the experience going out into a park and just catching those frogs and seeing them, um, and discovering what other animals were, were there, uh, was, yeah, a huge driver in my development when it comes to all of that. <laughs> so, so I take it when you caught the frogs, some of them you actually kept and put in this man-made pond. Others, did you release them back? Or what did you do with the frogs? <laughs> yeah, so the majority of them we released. Um, we were very, it was very much just the thrill of catching it because we weren't extremely successful and the frogs were really great at, you know, um, escaping our efforts. And so, yeah, a lot of it was just trying to find um a frog that we can catch and and learning, you know, and spotting them because, you know, the frogs are adapted for hiding and, um, you know, so sometimes we just have to be looking for the little eyes and nose poking out of the water and, um, and yeah, so that became, you know, a game in itself and it was fun and it was challenging. And, um, at the same time, it was teaching us about, about these frogs, even though we didn't even realize it. Um, That's true. You know, sometimes we were there just just to catch them and the thrill of that. And it's, um, but we were learning, yeah, where they spend their time, how they spend their time. You know, if we were out there on a, a rainy day, maybe we'd see a different behavior or activity than if we were out there on a really sunny day. And so we were constantly, you know, learning even though we didn't realize it. And, um, yeah, I think that was really interesting and definitely, like, helped my development, my understanding of herpetology, and yeah. That seems like the best way to learn, actually, when we can make it a game and not and just learn by doing, by, by observing, by experiencing, not so much being told what to look for or what to do, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there that when we go out in nature really taking a step back and observing or just doing something and not putting too much thought into it right away um, really allows it to these connections to happen naturally and these um, uh, you know just a basic understanding of what's happening around us because I think a lot of times nowadays we'll go out and have more of a plan in mind or something you're looking for um and sometimes i think that prevents us from you know seeing things that uh, might be happening right in front of us so let's talk about that for a minute you grew up uh, right outside chicago and so you know a major metropolitan urban area i i remember and here you were going out uh, obviously on these nature trips but how does one find nature in an urban area and let me just preface it by saying I grew up in Houston, Texas, which is also a, a major urban area, but my family had a house that was in a new development in kind of the suburbs, if you will, of Houston at the time. And so we had wild blackberry bushes growing in a lot behind us, and we had a little pond on the neighborhood uh, that was there that some houses were built around. So for me, I went out in nature and observed things. I remember the snakes coming and eating the blackberries 
and observing that, and then going over to the pond and seeing the water moccasins, the another kind of snake, and then the ducks and the birds and and we used to have occasionally the coal snakes come into our yard, and so we had to be or copperheads, and we had to be careful because those are poisonous. So it's it, I don't see those anymore, and I live in Atlanta. You do too, you know, and right in the middle of the city. And are they still around? Are we just missing them, not noticing them, or what's happening? And how does one find nature in an urban area? Yeah, so definitely where I grew up. Um, we have an extremely dense uh, human population, and my neighborhood specifically is a lot of residential um, housing. And so there was not a ton of space for for nature as we think of nature. As most people think of nature, you know, you think of uh, a forest or a desert or a rainforest and um not a lot of people really think of urban areas as natural places um but a lot of times you know you have parks or small green spaces hidden um you know in a neighborhood or even in your backyard and those places you know wildlife still um can thrive in those places sometimes it's very difficult for them um but i think you know Really uh, sitting down and um, engaging with those spaces, a lot of people would be surprised as far as how much um, they can find around them. And, yeah, growing up for me, it was the parks, going to parks and stuff that really um, opened my eyes up to what was around me. And then also, like, thinking about nature from multiple perspectives because, a lot of times we have our own ideas. Like when I was younger, I was really, you know, focused on reptiles and amphibians. So I wasn't finding those in my backyard. And so I wouldn't really consider my backyard nature back then. But now with an understanding of, you know, a larger ecosystem and thinking about everything from frogs and snakes to insects to bacteria to even just like weather and non-living parts of nature, I think that gives you a very a, a broader, you know, perspective on nature and that really allows you to see how much nature is around us even in urban spaces. But with that being said, I think a lot of times there actually is more nature than people think. Um like here in Atlanta we still have a lot of snakes in a lot of urban areas and people just don't realize it because snakes are adapted for hiding and coming out at night. And it's, you know, not times when people really engage with them or see them. And so um, taking a time to try and search for them and thinking from their perspective is, you know, one way when where you can realize or encounter them. And it's really difficult sometimes. I spend a lot of time herping as just an enthusiast. So herping is going out and looking for specific reptiles and amphibians or just looking for them in general. And that has taught me a lot about um, how secretive some of them are and how some of them are extremely difficult to find. And definitely in urban areas, it makes it more difficult because they face problems that they're not going to face in a forest, like traffic and cars and, you know, houses that have landscaping with plants that don't support insect life that they are accustomed to. So it's tough in urban areas, but it's definitely, I think, fascinating to me 
how um, human development has changed habits and behaviors and how um, wildlife is so resilient and can still thrive. Um, and for me, learning a lot about birds in the past um, two years or so has really opened my eyes to seeing birds as these amazing creatures that can um, a lot of species can do extremely well in urban areas and learning about them and noticing them for the first time waking up in the morning and hearing a bird calling outside my window and recognizing for the first time that that's this species, um, I think is really interesting to me. And it's, you know, those small connections, I think, that are so fascinating and um, create a really strong, like, conservation ethic and just uh, connection to nature and, you know, our backgrounds and our roots as humans. So, Yeah. So you've touched on a couple of really cool points that I want to go over. And one is is for you to describe a herping example when you go out at night. And another is the um, the plants that people landscape with don't support the insects that the animals need or, you know, are looking for for their food and, and that, that ecological system. So let's start by um, talking about one of your herping examples. I know you... You do go out in the evening uh, or nighttime to look for these animals. So tell us about that. If we were on a field trip on a, on a herping uh, excursion with you, what would it be like? Yeah, so a lot of times I go out in the evening because a lot of reptiles and amphibians are nocturnal. So naturally they're starting to wake up right when um, the sun's going down. Um, but that's not always the case. Um, there's a lot of diurnal species that are going to be awake and active during the day. So usually when I'm herping, there's a couple things. One, I might be looking for a particular species, and that's going to totally cater my search to certain things, whether it's nighttime, daytime, a certain weather, or, you know. And so sometimes I'm searching for a certain thing, and sometimes I'm just going out and trying to relax and enjoy myself, and whatever I find, I find. Um, and so each location, each little small ecosystem is going to present different species and different situations. Weather is an extremely huge factor when you're herping, looking for reptiles and amphibians because they are ectothermic. So they're considered um, cold-blooded. And that just means that they get, you know, their energy from the environment around them. And so they don't have a constant body temperature like humans and mammals and um, endothermic animals do. And so the weather has a huge influence on their activity. And so that oftentimes drives, you know, where I'm looking. And so sometimes like a rainy night in the fall is going to be perfect for certain salamander species. And so if I'm looking for spotted salamanders or marbled salamanders, I might go out on a rainy um, night and late fall because I know that that's when they start to be active. These are salamanders that are not active throughout the whole year. They spend a lot of time underground and then they start to come to the surface in the um, fall and winter time when they're going to be breeding. And so, you know, go out at night and then when I'm in a specific space, you're looking um, at places where these animals would be breeding or would be active. And sometimes it's a bit of a shot in the dark because you really don't know. But sometimes um, these animals will come together in large numbers. So luckily with uh, a lot of salamander species, 
uh, you can find them really close to water. Some species, it's not the case, but um, with these mole salamanders in the fall and winter, they concentrate around water usually because that's where they're going to breed. And so that makes it a little bit more easy to find them. Um, and sometimes you think it's easy and you don't find anything. So it really varies a lot depending on the time of year and what you're looking for and um, all sorts of things. And it's it's really, for me, a lot of fun to go sometimes with a target individual species in mind. And sometimes it's really fun to just go out and try something new, go to a different location you've never been to before um, and see what you can see, see if you can make new observations and new connections because I'm constantly learning new things about all these different critters and um you know, I we're never fully going to understand them, and so that's something that's exciting and motivates me to go out and continue herping and um, birding and, you know, just interacting with wildlife and nature. So if you were going to go out and look for one of the salamander species in late fall, in the evening, uh, when it's raining, would you would you necessarily go into a park that had like a stream in it or... Uh, some kind of water source, as you mentioned, and would you be turning over logs? Would you be hiking down trails or in the forest? Or Give us a little more detail. Yeah, sure. So it really depends on uh, the the species, but um, in general, uh, good things for amphibians are, yeah, wetlands. So this could be a stream, it could be a pond, it could be a puddle. So these mole salamanders in particular, and a lot of actually amphibians in the Atlanta area, um, really breed in puddles. So when it rains a lot and this small dent in the ground fills up with water and that lasts for a couple of days or a couple of weeks, um, that can be a huge thing for attracting a lot of different amphibian species. And so when you're out making observations of you know, the geological layout and the hydrogeological layout of the land and looking at, okay, this is a creek um, and it's connected to this river and there's a pond here and there's some lowland here and there's some elevated land over here. Um, all those things uh, are important and play a role. So these large mole salamanders, they like to um, bury themselves in standard ground, usually in a little bit higher elevated land than down in, you know, the lowland that turns into a puddle. Um, and so looking for areas where there's hills and sort of valleys or just lower areas where water is going to collect um, is a really good way to start looking for those species. Um, and yeah, it varies completely. But then when you're out there and you're specifically looking for them, it depends what time of day you're looking. So during the day, when these animals are resting or sleeping, they're going to be hiding under logs and rocks and, you know, other fallen debris. And whenever we're out there looking, we're, you know, extremely uh, careful that we don't disturb the habitat in their um, home too much. So if we're looking under a log, we'll lift the log up and see if there's a salamander under there and then um, put it back extremely gently and try and put it back exactly how we found it. If we do find a salamander, you know, we just take photos of them usually. Sometimes we leave them exactly where they are, and sometimes we'll pick them up just to, you know, hold them in our hand and investigate um, carefully. And with amphibians, you have to make sure your hands are clean. You don't have any mosquito repellent um, or anything like that, any lotion, because they're extremely sensitive to anything coming from their skin because they breathe partially through their skin sometimes 
100% through their skin. And so, um, yeah, there's definitely a, a way to be responsible when you're out and respectful, um, you know, so that you're not causing more harm than, than good. And, and yeah, so we're really careful when we're out there that we don't, uh, disturb the animals too much. Um, and yeah, we like to take photos of them and share them, um, with other people and then put them back. Um, you know, if it's under a log, we'll put the log down first and let them crawl back under so we don't smash them when we're putting the log down. Um, it's those little things I think that, um, are really important when you're out, um, looking for these critters and, um, making sure that you're not causing more harm. So when you're in a stream, making sure you're putting the rocks back, um, making sure that you're not bringing trash or anything out into the environment, um, just being respectful and mindful. Um, but yeah, that's the basic process and it really varies from species to species. Sometimes you'll be looking up high in trees, sometimes under logs and daytime, nighttime, it might change where you're looking. And so you're constantly learning. You know, I've amassed all this information and knowledge from spending hours and hours and hours out looking for these different animals and you're learning new things and better ways to search for them and understand what they're doing um, by spending time and making those connections. Yeah, thanks for that. So we're speaking with Gabe uh, Anderley, and he has you. You have your YouTube channel and your Instagram page, Nature with Gabe. Do you have like a little video on Nature with Gabe, perhaps that tells one how to go out and search respectively for these animals? Have you done that I yet? I don't have. Uh, I don't have one yet. Potentially, I I may be making one um, right now the way you can kind of interact with that and find more information. So I post a lot of photos on my Instagram of animals that I found in nature. Actually, all of the photos on my Nature with Gabe Instagram account are photos of animals I've taken in their natural habitat. Um, And so none of those are captive animals. They're all animals I've found out in nature. And so they all have a story and they all have, you know, a for me, like information on how I found them, where I found them and all of that. And so you can interact and look at some of those posts and some of those posts I have information about how I found them, where I found them. And then you can also, if you find an animal um, that I might have seen in Atlanta or somewhere that you might be surprised about, you can always um, message me through that post and send me that post and ask me more about it and I'd be happy to you know, uh, talk to you and share some information about, you know, uh, that animal or, you know, potentially where you might find it in the state or how to look for it or, you know, some of the more um, protected species I might not be able to give as much much information about just because they're a lot more sensitive, but um, I'd be happy to, yeah, answer questions about different animals and stuff through my Instagram. Fantastic. Thanks. So back to the um, the landscaping of the way we landscape our urban areas. I know we've, it, it looks like to me, let me put it this way, here in Atlanta, that landscapes are usually within, usually a few species of trees and bushes are used by everybody <laughs> around all the homes. And not always are they native species. And of course, this can be a problem because 
the ones that, that are here locally or what the animals locally have adapted to and are using for its food source sources and shelters and our ecological system, as you were speaking. So when we come in and we plant, um, you know, Bradford pear trees and and different um, species that are here that, that, that wouldn't normally be here, they're from other countries or other places, it can be a problem for the wildlife. So talk a little bit about that. What would you suggest and how can people be better attuned to wildlife and nature? Yeah, so absolutely. Um, today you find a lot of homes and houses that kind of have, uh, yeah, very similar plants like you said. And that's because um, a lot of these plants, even if they're not native to this place, they do really well here. And, you know, in your garden, you know, people want something that's just going to do well, look good, and all of that. But that comes at a cost a lot of times um, ecologically. So there's some plants that uh, a lot of the insects that are native to here cannot um, live or interact or benefit from at all. Um, there's some number about, um, like, I think it's oak trees and how many different caterpillars they support compared to some of our non-native, uh, commonly landscaping, landscape trees around here. And, you know, birds in the springtime are looking for thousands and thousands of caterpillars and, um, other insects to feed their, um, their chicks. And so, just having one tree in your backyard that is a native tree could make the difference for one entire, you know, clutch of eggs for some species of bird that's native to your area. Um, so really, the little things um, go a long way. Um, planting one tree can make a big difference. Even having a, a planted native plant in a pot on your front porch or your balcony if you live in an apartment. Um, can make a really big difference. So little things add up and, um, you know, when you're dealing with landscaping and stuff, one of the biggest, um, issues and problems is the invasive plants. So we have non-native plants that a lot of people use for landscaping and some of them, you know, are planted and they just stay right there and they do fine and they grow. Um, but other ones take advantage of the place that they're in and they will grow a ton. And, you know, the most common ones here in Atlanta are kudzu, English ivy, um, Chinese privet. And those are plants that people sometimes, you know, will plant in their yards or have come in, um, in other ways from, um, you know, business or just accidentally and they start growing everywhere. And those are the ones you really, really, really want to watch out for because they can take over and damage and cause a lot of harm to um, ecosystems and make it really difficult for native animals to flourish. And everything is, you know, really, really connected. So just having one, like I said, oak tree planted in your backyard will make a big difference. And just having like one little pot of English ivy could make a big difference because 30 years from now it could turn into a whole forest. And um yeah, so I really think that the other thing is, like, in urban areas, residential areas are very huge because there's so many people. And so backyards really add up. And, you know, you might think, oh, this is just my yard. It's one tiny area. It's not connected to a forest or anything like that. But if you can start where you are, start with what you have, start with one plant on your front porch and um, build from there, 
it can really make a difference. If you can share that experience with your neighbor, um, you know, plants move from yard to yard. They're not going to um, just stay in one place. Um, and so, you know, starting where you are and then building from there can go a long way. And um, for some species that you might not realize, um, it can make a big difference. That's fantastic. And let's talk a moment about pesticides, because when you said the oak tree supports a lot of caterpillar species, my first thought was, do we want caterpillar? Obviously, the birds eat them, but but maybe I don't want caterpillar species, so I'm going to use pesticides to spray them away. But in truth, we've gotten hooked on pesticides. I know for me, I choose not to have any pesticides on, on our property. But we're one small, you know, we're one house, we're one lot in a very dense neighborhood, and I know that's making a difference. However, um, you know, pesticides are are killing our bees, our pollinators, our our butterflies, our good insects. So, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think pesticides are a, are a huge problem, and um, just like you said, they're affecting some of our most important. Um, you know, ecosystem engineers in the world, um, in these pollinating animals that play a huge role in not only our food consumption, um, and pollinating the plants that we eat, but pollinating plants that other animals eat and other animals rely on. And yeah, we have this, you know, kind of ingrained, um, idea, this ingrained convenience of, taking a pesticide and using it to solve one problem uh, and not realizing we're creating multiple other problems. And that's kind of an idea that, yeah, latches onto a ton of other environmental issues. Um, but, yeah, this one is a really good example. And and we're constantly learning now how much of an issue that's been um, by putting things into the environment ever since um, Silent Spring by Rachel Carson, you know, we're realizing more and more that these things, these actions have far more consequences than we realize. And um, I think oftentimes nature really knows best and we need to stick to that. And that's the safest option. Um, And so, yeah, I'm definitely on the same page as you that going without pesticides is probably the best option. Um, And it's definitely case by case um basis uh but uh yeah it's it's one of those really 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 difficult ones and it's one that's been extremely detrimental and damaging and it's something that we're only now realizing um the extent of that damage and trying to you know reverse some of that bees are declining like immensely and i think they're listed as endangered species now um and now we have to try and combat that. And everybody can make a difference by stop using pesticides and finding other ways to, you know, let plants flourish. And a lot of times we're using pesticides on um, our non-native plants. And if you had a native plant, sometimes it wouldn't even need um, any of those pesticides. Um, but it's a lot of misunderstanding. Um, and, you know, I think we can all slowly learn to um, embrace, yeah, just nature and get rid of pesticides. And that's going to make a very, very, very big difference. Um, 
for not only those tiny pollinators, but the animals that rely on them, including ourselves. Yeah, I know that that's a huge topic, and and that could be a whole radio show in of itself to talk about pesticides. Um, so let's talk, though. I know you're an, you are an avid golfer, and you have expressed to me in the past about golf courses are actually can be a wonderful natural habitat for these native species and and wildlife. Um, talk a little bit about that. What can you see golf courses become? But they do use a lot of pesticides, so go into that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so growing up in urban Chicago, Chicagoland area, um, I was always, you know, looking out for nature. Once I became hooked on nature, which was, who knows, way back when, when I was a tiny person, and growing up, yeah, I was constantly looking for places. And at first it was parks. And then um, once I started golfing, which was in high school, you know, I really started to realize that I was seeing a lot of things on golf courses that I didn't see anywhere else. Um, I was seeing skunks walking across the fairway. Um, I was seeing, you know, some turtle species that I didn't see at the parks that I was going to to look for bullfrogs. Um, I was seeing bird species that I'd never seen before. Um, and so that kind of caught my attention and uh, made me realize that, especially in urban areas, golf courses actually play um, an important role in supporting um, some wildlife uh, that might not do as well if those golf courses weren't there. And so what grabbed my attention is, you know, seeing those animals um, there and then realizing that, you know, these golf courses have a lot of potential to make a difference um, if, you know, management and if um, these courses are possibly run um, slightly different than they already are. Because if they're already supporting um, some wildlife and, like you said, they're using a lot of pesticides and golf courses, you know, are usually seen as something that's detrimental to the environment and they're just using a bunch of water and all of this. Um, if they could be run slightly different, then, and they're already making a big difference and they're already, you know, that bad for the environment, if we make them slightly better for the environment, they're going to be even better for supporting um, urban wildlife and making a really big difference. So I potentially, um, or I could see them um, in the future becoming really important um, in urban areas for supporting wildlife. And if um, if we can manage them um, properly and come up with creative and unique ways to, um, you know, uh, work together from the environmental perspective and um, the golf side of things and the uh, recreational um, aspect, then I think they really have uh, some great potential um, as green spaces. And they are already a positive, many of them are already uh have a positive impact in in certain areas, um, but they have plenty of issues that still need to be overcome. Well, I know you've talked about possibly being a consultant to golf courses in this area. What are some of the creative ideas of how they can change their management? Yeah, so just as we were talking before, plants, changing the plants that they have on the golf course um, is one easy and quick step to kind of start um, becoming uh, a, an even 
um, more appealing um, place for native species. So if you're just planting a small um, plant bed behind a tea box that has pollinator-friendly plants and you're not using pesticides on that little um, garden, that's going to create a positive impact. But if you just think about all the land that golf courses have, um, there's just, you know, incredible amount of, of potential there. And, yeah, I think managing plants is probably one of the biggest first steps that they can take. Um, and so that's creating little buffer zones in golf courses. So around hazards like water or behind um, poles where you have some forested area, you know, really concentrating on removing invasive species and promoting the growth of native species and creating areas that are kind of off limits for people to go um, so that wildlife can, can really thrive and take hold. Um, and then after, you know, really focusing on plants, I think uh, a huge thing that you, you know, mentioned is the sustainability side of things. So looking at water use, looking at pesticide use and seeing, um, asking how can we uh, change what we're doing now to make this more sustainable? How can we come up with creative ways to um, use, you know, rainfall to um collect rainfall and use that to water the greens or water different parts of the course that need more water. Um, and so, yeah, I think those starting with plants and then thinking about energy and resource consumption, I think are two ways to really start um, addressing issues and creating more of a positive impact at golf courses. Um, but then beyond that, there's, there's so much more because there's potential for education. There's potential for, um, you know, learning and creating a uh, a community-based, you know, um, place where people can kind of come and even if you're not a golfer, enjoy this this natural space and enjoy um, the land that, that is there and can, you know, host amazing wildlife and, and become a place where nature really thrives and does well. Fantastic. So what you just described, I want to move over to zoos. Because zoological parks, um, and to a certain extent aquariums as well, obviously, um, although they usually are indoor buildings, not too much outdoor buildings, but still they're they're uh, prom- promoting obviously the the animals of the of the water, uh, not just land. And these are institutions that, when they're done right, they also can provide the educational opportunities and obviously the multi diversity of species and. Uh, talking about native species, et cetera. Tell us a little about zoos, because I know you are an animal keeper, a bird keeper over at Zoo Atlanta here in Atlanta. So what are you seeing the the value of zoos and your experiences there? Yes, yeah, so going back to when I was growing up in um, urban Chicagoland area, zoos were one of those things that played a huge role in um, really funneling me into uh, wildlife and nature as a career. So I had those all those connections and that interest from a young age. But then um, once I got into high school, I started volunteering. And that, you know, uh, brought me to quite a few realizations and really was a great place to network and learn and connect. And, um, and, and yeah, so... From early on when I was at Brookfield Zoo way back when, 
I began to realize the immense potential that zoos have um, because, especially in urban areas. And for me, a lot of this is, you know, based on my experiences and it is me growing up in urban areas. Um, so I can speak to that most, but um, zoos touch so many people in urban areas that can't connect with nature in the same way that other people do. And so, you know, highly populated parts of the country. And so, the potential to teach people at zoos is is incredible, and I think a lot of times zoos are focusing on uh, species from all over the globe, faraway places, um, and sometimes missing opportunities to talk about wildlife and people's own backyards and neighborhoods, um, which is some of the stuff we've been talking about um, throughout this show. And those are the things that I think are really up and coming and have so much potential um, to create change and to create a strong conservation uh, ethic and base for, you know, um, people who don't have the opportunity always or don't realize they have the opportunity to connect with uh, what's around them. And so, yeah, I think zoos can really pave the way. Um, and there's so many different ways that they can do that. There's so many opportunities for them to get creative um, and engage people, whether that's, you know, uh, leading, you know, nature walks in the local park or planting native plant gardens that are examples for um, guests to come and see and learn and see what it's like and um, see firsthand the pollinators that are coming in and talk with educators about, you know, how they can do this at their own home um, and realize the immense positive impact that these things have. Zoos can also um, engage with native wildlife programs and conservation uh, to connect people with things that they can, you know, leave the zoo and realize they can do something to help that species in their own backyard um, or their own neighborhood. And I think those things are really, really powerful because it allows you to take ownership of, you know, the wildlife and nature that is near you. Um, and it really gives you firsthand experience then with that conservation and with making that difference. And that will allow people to better understand, you know, conservation issues that might be more complex or far away from their own home and give them an idea to ask maybe different questions that they hadn't thought of before um, in regard to different conservation issues, you know, from things as small as plastic pollution to things as large as climate change. Mm, fantastic. So do you think we're talking enough about these ecological systems in schools and teaching our kids the value of, the, of nature? I think some places are and some places aren't. Um, you know, it really uh, varies a lot. You know, school to school, teacher to teacher. Um, and... I think we're definitely heading in the right direction. Um, but also it's like a lot of things are changing very rapidly. And I think a lot of people are moving farther from nature and a lot of people are moving closer to nature at the same time. And so I think it just takes a lot of, um, you know, creativity and thought as far as trying to give everybody opportunities to engage with nature um, in unique and creative ways. So um, maybe people aren't spending time outside, um, finding ways that they can interact with nature 
or get connected with nature um, from an indoor space that might inspire them to become, you know, ask questions or want to spend more time outside. Um, I think that's all really important. And I think with technology these days, there's so many new ways that we're learning to engage with our surroundings. And, you know, I think there's just so many opportunities to really be creative and especially with schools and learning. Um, but I think my, my biggest encouragement is to try and spend time outside, especially with um, younger children, because I think that's when a lot of connections are made that we don't realize and don't fully understand. And so just taking someone outside and not giving them any instructions, but just allowing them to interact with their surroundings and make observations um, is incredibly important in, you know, development. And I think that definitely needs to be um, a focus in some schools and educational institutions are doing a much better job than others. Um, yeah. Yeah. There, You bring a, a couple of things to mind, and that is there's a movie called Play Again, and it's a bullfrog film. A bullfrog film is a, is a company that makes these or, or hosts these documentaries. And it's basically a, a film about high schoolers who are taken away from their screens or, or volunteer to get away from their screens and to get outside for a week camping. And none of them have been camping. And so it's about discovering nature uh, and playing again. And then also zoos, I know, and aquariums are doing something called Nature Play. Uh, that That's a, a whole network of education values or, or templates for educators to work with kids to get outside and and basically, as you're saying, play in nature in a discovery, a discovering manner. Um, so we're getting toward the end of the show, Gabe. And as always, you know, we're talking about peace on the Peace Brain Show. <laughs> I guess I'd ask you, are there any sort of closing thoughts you have for our listeners? And maybe you could throw in something about also how this all being out in nature relates to peace. Yeah. So... I think biggest uh, closing words are are go outside and um, (laughs) even if it's for five minutes, uh, go outside and don't go out with any um, ideas or thoughts. Just go outside and sit or walk or run um, without headphones, without any distractions and take in the environment around you. Use your senses, use your smell, use your hearing, use your eyes you know, to really um, take in your surroundings in in new ways and uh, let your mind wander. And I think that, you know, is the first step for um, really becoming more connected with nature and learning, engaging and understanding and discovering things about yourself and the world around you um, that I think make a big difference um, for humans all over the world. And I think, yeah, I think nature is a place, you know, that connects us all. Um, And a lot of times we might think we're far from it, but I think it's a lot closer than we realize. And I think when you, you know, get connected with nature and understand nature better, um, it's a, it's a great way to connect with other people around you um, and other people around the world. And so, yeah, I 
I think it's all related. Um, nature and peace, I think, go hand in hand. And I think uh, nature is an incredible tool um, for building peace and promoting peace. Um, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Gabe, Anderly, um, for being on the Peace Brain Show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm happy to join. Um, I had a fun time talking about all these awesome topics that I could talk about forever. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> You're welcome. So, everyone, you can find out more about Gabe and uh, listen and and look at his amazing photographs on his YouTube channel and his Instagram page called Nature with Gabe. That's N-A-T-U-R-E-W-I-T-H-G-A-B-E. And um, so check him out there. Yeah, it's it's fabulous. He takes amazing photographs, oh, my goodness, of all the animals that he's seen. So everyone take a breath. We're going to go into the Peace Brain Meditation just for a few minutes. And basically, I just want you to close your eyes. I invite you to close your eyes and connect with your feet on the floor. And know that you're connecting with the earth, even if you're inside your urban house or wherever you may be, just take a breath. First of all, your breath is connecting with the world around you. And then feel your feet on the floor. And know that that's the earth underneath you. I invite you to use your senses, as Gabe is suggesting. So take a whiff. What are you smelling around you? Even if you're indoors, obviously if you do this outdoors, you're going to be getting all these wonderful aromas around you, perhaps so also in your house. And then listen with your ears. Tune in really distinctly. What do you hear? It could be the house sounds around you, a fan or a machine. It could be outside, crickets, birds, some other insects, the wind. What do you feel against your skin? Notice not only your feet on the floor and feeling that substance, that substrate under you. Wiggle your toes and your shoes or maybe your shoes are off. But also, what do you feel against your skin? Are you sitting? What's the texture of the chair? your clothing. Begin to be aware of your senses. And then, of course, your inner sense, your knowingness, your inner intuition powers. What do you pick up on? What energy is around you? Is it happy? Is it calm? Is it stressed? Is it focused? Be aware Begin to use that miracu—excuse <clears throat> me, <clears throat> that miraculous body you have—and realize that it really is a miracle. Your body is nature as well. It picks up on all these connections. It is tied to that natural world, and you <clears throat> can sense it, hear it, smell it. Open your eyes and see it. 
What do you see around you? The colors, the sunlight, the sparkle on the leaves and the trees on the water, the hidden gems in the earth, as Gabe was saying, the frog's eyes that stick out of the pond or maybe out of the dirt. You can see so much around you and feel and hear and sense and be. So I invite you to to use your superpowers, <laughs> which are your six senses, your five physical ones, and then you're just your inner knowing. Like, is that animal going to be around the corner? Yes, it is. So take a breath. Bring yourself back to the room wherever you are or just be present in this beautiful space. And I invite you to create a garden, create a pot with a plant. Notice that a bee comes to your butterfly bush or to your flowers that you plant. Notice the birds around you and start to reconnect with nature. And then remember when you were a child or when you've had some amazing experiences with nature yourself. So honor your connections. Even in urban areas, it's very, very important. And then teach your children as well. So again, thanks for being on the Peace Brain Show and hearing my guest Gabe Enderly. And his, uh, you can find out more about Gabe, again, at his YouTube channel and his Instagram page, Nature with Gabe. And if you want to find out more about me, Dr. Gail Lash, you can go to my website, tourismforpeace.com, or you can email me at hello at peacebrain.org. So now please go forth and activate that peace brain and create your wonderful peace park if you choose uh, in your backyard or your business and put your peace park on our World Peace Trails map. Thanks again for tuning in today. Have an amazing day. Many blessings. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on the Peace Brain Show. You can find us at tourismforpeace.com. Be sure to check out Dr. Gale's Akashic Records readings, her peace master plans for your business or organization, and her book, Hashtag Opt for Peace, Nine Essential Steps to Achieving Peace, Power, and Prosperity. Tune in to BBS Radio, Station One, every other Wednesday at 6 p.m. Pacific and 9 p.m. Eastern to the Peace Brain Show for your installment of wonder, inspiration, and practical peace.